Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mission View. We hope that uh, you will take that introductory song as a challenge for each of us, that that's our mission, that we are to, to radiate God's glory in our life. We're to, to show it in our daily lives in the way that we live out our lives. Um, sometimes, though, we can become, you, you ever see those little glow-in-the-dark balls when you, had a, when you were a kid, you'd hold it up to the light, and then it would glow real bright? But if it was in darkness long enough, it lost its glow. And so we, sometimes that's what it's like for us. We, uh, we just need to be refreshed. We need to be in the present, in His presence. We need to worship Him. We need to be in His Word and worshiping as a body. And my hope is that today you will be filled up, that you would be filled up and that you would glow his presence and that you would just radiate his love to those that are around you. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do like they do in the Psalms. Often you'll read a Psalm and there would be a small section, like three or four verses, and then they would selah. And the word selah means to pause and to reflect. And so throughout this time together this morning, we're going to take bits and pieces of the Word of God, and then we're going to Selah. We're going to pause and reflect. And what we've done is we have, we have tailored the service so that the songs that we sing will reflect the principle that we just talked about in the Word of God and so we really, truly have a time to pause and to reflect on what the Word of God is, is saying to us. So we're kind of like in the Mission View living room. We're in that Mission View living room, and we're just worshiping and studying God's Word together. And so my hope is that we would be encouraged. The title of the message today is called The Great Reveal. I'm going to share a story, though, of, and I'll let you determine whether it was a great reveal. It was our first Christmas together, my wife and I. Lee and I were married in 1986. So December 25th, 1986, we were in our little apartment on Bookdale Avenue near Akron University. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot, but we had love, and that really was all that mattered. We, our, our apartment that year was decorated and furnished by all the hand-me-downs that we had received from both sets of parents, but it didn't matter that we were dirt poor. We had one of those little Charlie Brown fake Christmas trees that seemed to have a little Detroit lean to it, but it didn't matter that it was ugly, as, it, and, ugly and hideous. It, we had love. It was our first, marry, first uh, Christmas together being married together. And so we had determined that year that we were going to only spend about 50 bucks on each other because we didn't have much more money, especially with all the other shopping we had to do. So I <clears throat> took that as a challenge to find the most beautiful sweater that I could find, and I finally found one that was absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous, at least in my mind it was. And Lee even told me that she was a size medium, so I got the right size and everything. I knew we wouldn't have to take it back. Anyways, I went and I searched and searched uh, different stores. I probably went to two stores um, <clears throat> in my search. 
And so after I found it, why search anymore? So I went home and I wanted to make sure that I wrapped this in a beautiful way. Now you got to understand, in the martial tradition of things, we would normally, tra uh, the marshals growing up, we would normally wrap all of our gifts in Beacon Journal newspaper. All, all Christmases were brought to you by Santa and the Beacon Journal. Now, I wanted this to be a special Christmas, so I was not going to do that. I was going to use good wrapping paper. So like a surgeon with great precision, I wrapped that thing. It was beautiful in my eyes. Let's just put it that way. And so I was giddy in the sense of excitement and ready to give her her gift. And so uh, finally it was time for the great reveal. The day had come. We were going to open up our gifts, and it was time for me to give over my gift to my beloved. And so she opens it up, and as soon as she saw her gift, I could see that I hit the jackpot because she held up her sweater. And as she held up her sweater, she says, where did you get this? And with great pride, I said, I got that at a store at the mall at Lane Bryant's. Now, I didn't know. Some of you are asking, why are people gasping? I didn't know that Lane Bryant's was a plus-size store. I could have been a little bit more observant, I suppose, but that was our very first Christmas together. Well, it wasn't that great of a reveal, and if I would have been a little bit more observant, I think I wouldn't have made that mistake. We're going to be talking about a different kind of a reveal that's far greater than anything I've just described. It is the greatest gift, it is the greatest reveal that's ever happened to us, and that is we are going to discover the Son of Man. We're going to look at Christ. And this is, this is our series title as we go through the book of Mark, Discovering the Son of Man. And so as we go through this book, what we want to do is meticulously look at the details of how Mark writes and learn about Christ. And that is the privilege that you and I have to be able to do that. Now Mark, as he writes this book, he writes it in such a way that he helps us understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he wants of us as disciples. See, a major thrust for, for, for Mark is that he wants disciples. He wants other Christ followers to emulate Jesus Christ. And that's our goal, that we would emulate, that we would follow the example of Christ. Now, in order for us to proceed, I want us to have a little bit of background in terms of the book of Mark. The book of Mark was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, I think understanding who John Mark is is important to us because we then have a little bit more relatability with him. Now, John Mark came from a very influential and probably somewhat of wealth in Jerusalem. You can see that in Acts 12, verse 12. He was also related to Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is that guy in the scripture that believed in the impossible. He believed in people. When Saul, who had become Paul through conversion, when nobody else wanted to deal with him, Barnabas took him to the other brothers and sisters and said, listen, he, he, there's been an authentic conversion here. Well, Barnabas was a cousin to John Mark. 
And Barnabas was also instrumental in leading a first missionary journey with Paul into Asia Minor and seeing the spread of the gospel. Well, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them on their first missionary journey, which they did. But John Mark, in the midst of that journey, abandoned his responsibilities. Maybe it was youthful ambition, maybe it was ignorance, maybe it was just plain and simple sin, but he abandoned his responsibility. When it came time for John Mark to go on the second missionary journey, which Barnabas wanted to happen, Paul said, that's not going to happen. Now, you could see Barnabas believing in his cousin and Paul being matter-of-fact, saying, I'm going to take Silas, you go elsewhere. And so we see Barnabas taking John Mark and going to Cyprus and doing the work of the Lord. Now, some would say, well, there was a division in the body already. Well, what we see after 12 years, after some time of maturity, John Mark and Paul reunite and in fact, just before Paul dies, he says, send John Mark to me because he's useful. And so he is sent to Rome and he is useful for Paul. Now this book was written probably in the late 50s and he, it was done under the mentorship of Peter. Peter is the one that was instrumental in discipling John Mark. John Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple, a second-generation believer who was a disciple of Peter. And he was under his apostolic authority. you got to understand, any book in the Scripture has to have a connection to an apostle for it to be credible. So he was under the apostolic authority of Peter. Now, what we learn about his writing style is that John Mark did less of a biography. In other words, he didn't go into the genealogies like in other of the Gospels, but he did more of a pre presented more of a mosaic puzzle so that we could see snapshots of Jesus Christ so that people could understand, the readers could understand that this truly was the powerful Messiah who has come. Now, he's also writing to a Gentile crowd. As he's writing to this Gentile crowd in Rome, you got to know something about that Gentile culture. This was the man's man culture. This is where gladiators came from. And they loved action. And so Mark writes within that style to appeal to the reader so that they could see the actions of Christ. He deals less with the actual teachings of Jesus. He does deal with some but more with the actions of who Christ is so that they could see it. Now, the purpose of the book is found in Mark 1.1. It says this, In the, be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the Son of God. Now, Mark doesn't give a whole lot of fluff. He just gets right to the point, right to the action, right to the purpose of what this book is all about. This book is about Jesus. Now, the word gospel means good news. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. He wanted them to understand, I believe he wants us to understand, what this book is about. That it's not about peripheral things, but it goes directly to the heart of what Christianity is all about, is about Jesus. I think that's really important, 
Because we live in a society where many people have discounted Christianity because of what they've seen on television, scandals, hypocrisy, all these kinds of things. And what, what John Mark wants is for us to understand who Christ is. He wants us to understand the gospel given to him, given through Jesus Christ. Years ago, I led a class called Christianity Explored, and I had a young lady, I had a lady who was actually in her 60s, but she shared a story as I asked those people that were seeking to know truth, what, what's their hesitation about Christianity? And she said, you know, I had an experience. She says, I had a child out of wedlock, unfortunately, and she says, I went to the hospital in my 20s to have this baby. I wrote down my denomination, and later on, a minister from that denomination came, put his foot on my bed. I did not know this man and said, now what are we going to do with this bastard child of yours? These are the kind of things that people get caught up in. What, what John Mark wants for us is not to miss the most important thing. It's Jesus. The word Jesus is the Old Testament equivalent to Joshua, meaning God's, God's anointed. It is, Christ is the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. And so that's what we're going to learn about. God's salvation, God's anointed one. And so when you read that first verse, you understand this is about God. Now our first Selah is to celebrate the gospel, the good news. And what I want us to do is just cherish the gospel message that we have. Now, I noticed while we were singing that there were a few of you that wanted to move a little bit. I want you to know it's okay to move. It's okay to clap. It's okay to participate because this is the good news. This is, a, this is what we should be excited about. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now we're moving on to the next section. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And I'm calling this the verification. And what we see here are three verifications that are given to Jesus being the Messiah. And the first one is in verses 2 to 3. It says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now the first verification is the Old Testament prophets. Actually, these two verses are a combination of two prophets. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And basically it's showing that the prophets are unified in that there would be a messenger that would come someday. Now think about this for Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ even came on the earth. And Isaiah predicts that God would prepare the way for the Messiah. Now this tells us that God is an advanced planner. Actually, we can even go further back to see how much he plans, but he uses the prophet to show that there would be a forerunner, and that person would be John, who we'll hear from in a minute. 
and he will prepare the way for the Lord, which would be Jesus Christ. So we have the first verification is the Old Testament prophets. The second verification is John himself. Take a look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now John the Baptist is the forerunner that Isaiah talked about in the Old Testament. Now notice what John's ministry was all about. He says, it says in verse 4 that he came to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And some of us would look at that and say, okay, I understand that. Now here's what's highly unusual. In that Jewish culture, Gentiles, when they wanted to convert to, convert to Judaism, they had to be the ones that got baptized, not the Jews. But what we have here is John calling out to the Jews that they were the ones that needed to be baptized. They were the ones that needed to repent. And the word repent means to turn away from their sin. And they needed to ask God for the forgiveness of sin, meaning the removal of guilt from their life. And the symbol that John demanded <clears throat> was that they would go under the water, be totally immersed, and that this would be a show of humiliation, not humiliation, humbling before God, that they would humble themselves before God and that they would, in a sense, show outwardly what they're to do, what happened inwardly. Now, guys, that's why we have baptism even today. It's an outward sign of what God has done on the inside. Now, John knew what his role was, though. He knew that he was the forerunner. He was simply preparing the way for Jesus to come. He knew that the Messiah, once he came, that he would be more powerful than him. In fact, he says that in verse 7. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We're told in a parallel gospel that when Jesus comes onto the scene, John looks at Jesus and says, I need to be baptized by you. That was what, the way John verified, no, no, you're the one. You're the one I spoke of. You're the one I am unworthy to untie your sandals. I am the one, you are the one who is the Messiah. So we have the Old Testament prophets, we have John, but we also have God who verifies himself in terms of his son. Take a look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from, the, from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved, 
with you I am well pleased. Now what's interesting here at Jesus' baptism, very seldom do we see such a visual account of all of the Trinity, those in the Trinity working together. We see the Father rips open the heavens. We see a dove, we see the Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. And we hear the voice of the Father who says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So we see this verification. Now please note that when Jesus is baptized, he's not baptized like the other Jews. You see, he doesn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins as a symbol of that. He doesn't need that because he's sinless. He is the perfect Lamb of God. So you say, well, Steve, why was Jesus baptized in the first place? Why did that happen? I believe from the context we can determine a couple things. Number one, Jesus was submitting to the Father's plan, and thus the Father affirms him in doing his plan. That's why he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Second, this was an act of dedication to the mission. This officially marked the start of Jesus' ministry. From this point on, we see the action of his ministry. I want us to pause right now And I want us to worship our Savior, who has been verified by the Old Testament prophets, who has been verified by John the Baptist, who has been verified by the Father himself, that he is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And it's by his precious name we are saved. Lord, we just want to thank you that you are so awesome. We thank you that you are our Messiah, you are our Redeemer, you are Yahweh. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you loved us, that you gave us the way of escape. You gave us a way of escape from our sins, and we thank you, Father, for your plan. Thank you for what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Well, now we move on to the proof, the provenness of Christ Look at verse 12 and 13. Immediately after the ministry begins, the baptisms take place, Jesus goes into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, what's interesting is that the Spirit of God compels Jesus into the wilderness. The very Spirit that just descended upon him like a dove is the very Spirit that drives Jesus into the wilderness. Now, the word drive or drove does not indicate reluctance on Christ's part, but rather it indicates an intense preoccupation of the mind In other words, Jesus was determined through the Spirit to venture into the wilderness. He had to do this. Jesus had to face the enemy directly on. He drew the battle lines. He helped the enemy understand that he has come. He was providing the way, and he is drawing the enemy, he is drawing the lines. 
40 days Jesus goes without food. There are three waves of intense temptations uh, that are given by Satan the adversary. The very one who is the prince of darkness, the evil one, the slander. This is the one he is, who is coming to give these temptations. And he's living in the presence of wild beasts. It's interesting that he, Mark, uh, John Mark says the wild beast because what it indicates is that this was a very lonely, very desolate place with animals that could kill you. I don't know about you, me alone with animals that can kill me doesn't appeal to me at all. And so this is the environment that Jesus was in to be terrified. But what he does is he shows that he is God proven solid. Why does he do this? To draw the enemy lines, yes, but also to sympathize with you and I. We're told in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a high priest who sympathizes with, with all of our weaknesses. That's who Jesus Christ is. He knows when we're terrified. He knows when we're in a lonely place. He knows what it's like to be tested and to be tried. He knows what that's like because he's been there himself. As we pause to worship, what I want us to do is worship a victorious Messiah. A Messiah who understands battles. This wasn't his first battle, and it's certainly not his last battle. There will be many battles. In fact, there's going to be a day, Revelation 19 talks about, where there will be a battle when Christ comes and returns to the earth. And what's exciting is that you and I, if you are part of the bride of Christ, will be in the midst of that battle as well. And what we have is a Messiah that is a mighty warrior. So he begins the ministry. And now we move to the mission. Take a look at verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, just to give the setting here of the beginning of ministry for Jesus, John is taken into prison. There is a battle that's raging. Now, what I didn't mention is John is the relative of Christ, so his very relative is in jail. He's taken into prison. Jesus cares about his family, but he knows what the mission is about. And so Jesus is not thwarted from his mission, but he proceeds right away into what his mission is. The very one who came to be the good news starts to proclaim the good news. And he has a threefold message in this. Take a look at what he says. First of all, he says, part one, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? The time is fulfilled. Well, the word fulfilled marks the passing of an old era and the arrival of a new era. Basically, the law has come. Jesus is fulfilling the law, and he will be ushering in the new era of grace where God's Spirit will dwell in the heart of men as the prophets had spoken about. This would finally come true. 
Isaiah had spoken about grace in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He, it was recapped in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. This is what the prophets prophesied about. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of a sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is the ministry. This is the ministry of grace that Jesus is ushering. The old is passing. The new is being ushered in. This is part one of the message. Part two of the message, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now there's a lot of people that misunderstand what this, what Jesus is actually saying here because there's many different references to the kingdom in the scriptures. I want to give you the three different types of kingdom that are spoken of in the scriptures and let you know which one he is talking about here. The first kingdom that we see in the scriptures is in like 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 12 that says, Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. This is a universal kingdom. This is the kingdom that will forever be because God is on the throne. This is the one we should be very thankful for because even when we think the world has gone crazy, is out of control, ISIS is happening over in the Middle East, we have turmoil going on in the United States, we have turmoil going on in our own families, the universal kingdom and the king is still on his throne. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands, worried about what's going on. He is in control. And that's the one thing of confidence that we as believers always should come back to. The second type of kingdom that's spoken of in the scripture is what is known as a theocratic kingdom. This is where God will come and have an actual kingdom here on earth. The Jews longed for this day where the Messiah would sit on the throne of David and would rule, and there would be a theocratic rule over a nation. This is an actual nation, and this is where the Jews will inherit the earth. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Now, I want you to know that this is an actual kingdom that is yet to come. This will come after the second return of Christ. If you were read in the book of Revelation at the very end, you will see the establishment of what is called the millennial kingdom. Now, there's some people that don't believe that to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth that's in the future. Some think it's a, a figurative thing. It, I don't believe, if you believe in the literal interpretation of scriptures, that you can approach it that way. I believe this is an actual kingdom where Christ is on the throne. Now, this is something that is yet to happen. Both the universal kingdom and the theocratic kingdom is not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is what he will often refer to in all of the Gospels he will use terms interchangeably, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
Now, this kingdom is a kingdom that begins with the initiation of this ministry where Jesus is beginning proclaiming this news. He is saying this is the beginning. This is the message of the kingdom. And it will continue until he establishes his earthly kingdom upon his second return. So in a sense, we're living within that time frame, the beginning of Christ, and someday he's going to return. We're living within that kingdom work. And so when Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, he is saying, this is what it's like. This is what we are to be like. This is how we are to order our lives in the kingdom work. We're going to sing in a minute Matthew chapter 6, where we trust God in this kingdom. And it's his kingdom, his will be done, not our will be done. Because while this is happening, we're building this kingdom in the future. This is something that we are to do. Now, notice that there there are two ways that we get to participate in this kingdom work right now. We get to, one, respond to Jesus' message of repent and believe. We can acknowledge our need for a king in our life. We can ask Christ to come and live within us. We can ask God to forgive us of our sins. He wants that. But we also get to participate in this kingdom by inviting others to join in. And my friends, this tells us that there is a work. There is a kingdom work that Jesus was eagerly a part of. And there is a kingdom work that he wants you and I to be a part of. Sometimes we can just coast in our Christianity. We can just kind of cruise along thinking that we're just going to wait till heaven. We can talk about heaven. We can dream about heaven. We want heaven. But heaven's not going to come until we pass from this life. And what I don't want to do is treat this life as just a vacation until we get to heaven. No, there's work to be done. It's a hard work. It's a difficult work. Look at the life of Christ. He was in the midst of battle. It's a kingdom work. Now, the last part of this message is repent and believe. He says, it's about to come. Time has come. The, the kingdom of God is near, is near. Repent and believe. You know what he just gave us? He gave us the good news. He gave us the gospel message. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Such a simple message. Sometimes people will say, well, I just don't know how to share Christ. Remember these two words, repent, believe. If you can know that, you know the gospel message, that we need to turn from our sin, that we need to acknowledge our need for a Savior, the Savior. What's interesting is I think we live in a society that gets half the equation. There's lots of people that want to be saved from hell, but I don't know if there's a lot of people that want to be saved from their sin. See, what we want is we want to, we want heaven, but we want to live on to it, hold on to our life. And there's a lot of people that sit in churches that have prayed a prayer, and they think in their minds that they're a born-again believer, follower of Christ. But let me tell you that if there's not been a change in your life, if you're still holding on to the old habits, and there's been no change, then you're not saved because you have to repent and believe. It's not half the equation. It's the whole. We need to get past our addiction to ourselves. 
and what we want and to us calling the shots and for us to finally come to a place of surrender and say, okay, yeah, I understand. I haven't surrendered. And I need a transformation in my life. I need you to forgive me of all the filth and allow me to be a new creation. I believe in you. As we sing in this song, this song, we get to participate in the mission. We're going to have our offering, and Pastor Brian is going to come, and he's going to lead us in prayer for that offering before we sing. But as we do, keep this in mind. Let's remember that we're to trust God through this journey of our life. And what a privilege it is for us to advance the kingdom of heaven through sharing Christ with others. Brian's going to come and lead us in prayer. Pray with me. Thanks for redemption. God, thanks for your plan in spite of our rebellion. Your love in spite of our selfishness. Your grace in spite of our anger. Lord, this isn't something when we think about your kingdom that that we as one ministry can, can do alone and yet we want to do everything we can. And so God, I pray that you would give us a passion. A passion to, to reach people. A passion to look at our own lives and to see the areas that do not bring you honor and glory and to deal with them accordingly. And and God, just a passion to, to proclaim the truth. And Lord, as, as, much as, as much as we can to do everything we can to spread your message. And Lord, we know that we can't do it alone, and so we pray as well for New Point, for Brandon Connor as he, as he leads that ministry. We just ask God that they would, they would be successful as they share the hope that we can have in a relationship with you through your son Jesus. God, for, for the missionaries, the silvers over in Israel in a land that that you inhabited, and, and God, where you came and you fulfilled your earthly ministry, and yet, God, a land that is so far from you, and a people who deny you, and God, we just pray that you would just allow an awakening to occur, God, that you would come and you would save and you would move in incredible ways, and God, thank you for allowing us to be a small part of it. In your son Jesus' name we pray. We come to the last part of our journey in our passage today, and we see the discovery, the discovery that is made. Take a look at verse 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Notice the action, immediately. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the net. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now notice the immediate work of Jesus begins 
Mark once again underscores uh, this action that takes place. But I see three discoveries taking place here. The first discovery is that of Jesus discovering the disciples. Now, please note that this wasn't happenstance. This wasn't like, oh, I got lucky and I found these disciples. No, no, no. Jesus is sovereign. He knows exactly what he is doing, but he discovers these four men. Now, what's a little bit different here is that in Jewish tradition, there was often a rabbi, a teacher, who would have disciples. But those disciples would be people that would seek out the rabbi, not the rabbi seeking out them. And so in this situation, we have Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, who seeks out his disciples. Why? Because he has a mission. They don't understand the mission. They don't even know. They can't even begin to comprehend what's in store for them in the future. What a journey they're about to go on. The second discovery is the discovery of the men themselves of a new occupation. Now we're told in a parallel passage more information. And we're told in John chapter 1 that Andrew states to his brother Simon, which is the surname for Peter, he, sa he says this. He says, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Now, I, I believe that as these four men are gathering together, they heard this message of Andrew, but I don't know that they all completely comprehended what this meant that they found the Messiah. They didn't know what would unfold in the future, but what they did have was enough conviction that Jesus was someone special, the Messiah, that they knew that they had to change their occupations. They had to leave their nets behind and they needed to follow after Christ. When Jesus says, follow me, literally in the original language, it says, come behind me as a disciple, as a learner. Jesus had, so to speak, caught them. And now he would train them to fish for men out of a sea of sin and death. That's what he wanted to do. The third discovery is really what we make. It's the reader. The reader discovers more about the Son of Man. In this condensed record of events, it becomes very evident, very evident to all of us, that Jesus was a man of authority. He was a man of power. So much so that anybody that was reading this would have had to say, I cannot believe these disciples just immediately left their occupations and went and followed after Christ. It would invoke a question as it should for each of us. We should be asking, what kind of person is this? What kind of person invokes such a following? What does it mean to really be a follower of Jesus? And I believe that's what Mark was trying to accomplish as he wrote this account of Christ. Now, as we back away from this, I want us as a body, Mission View Church, to take away two challenges. Now, you can have a lot of other challenges that the Spirit could put on your heart, but here's two things to think about. First is for us to consider the cost. 
See, this was the first step in the journey of these disciples. And likewise, it is the first step for us as we journey as learners through the book of Mark. Now, one thing that will become evident throughout this entire book is this. What we believe about Jesus will determine the course of our life. Let that sink in. What we believe about Jesus will determine the course of our life. These disciples will learn this. I believe we will learn this. So the question is this. Are we willing, are we willing to allow Jesus Christ to change the course of our life? Are we willing to allow that to happen? These people were fishermen. That was their occupation. Fill in the blank. What occupation are you? Construction worker, carpenter, nurse, businessman, businesswoman. Continue on down the line. Every occupation. Are we allowing Jesus to take us from being this occupation to being fishers of men? Now, for some of us, that may mean that we go on the mission field someday. That might mean that some of you might go into full-time ministry. But my guess is that for the majority, it will mean something different. If this one thing happens, then we've accomplished much. If we can simply make the switch in our mind that we were put in the occupation that we've been given, not to make money, not to pay the bills alone, but because God wants us to be fishers of men. Are you willing to allow Jesus to change the course of your life? Count the cost. Here's the second challenge. Become the example. Jesus sets an example of finding men that he could pour his life into. We should do the same thing. The Apostle Paul made a statement If you observe it at first, you might say it's an arrogant statement. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, it's an arrogant thing if I just say, hey, follow my example. But if I say, follow my example because I'm simply following Jesus, come along. I'm going to take you in the direction of Jesus because you're not as far along in your growth and in your walk. Come follow That's a good thing. Just as Jesus invited people to come and follow, we have the job of enlisting those to follow as well. And here's the question. Are we willing? Are we willing to give ourselves away for God's mission? And here's one challenge I want everybody to hear. Would you pray in this challenge? Would you pray that over the course of the next three or four months as we go through the book of Mark, would you pray that God would give you one person that you could go through the book of Mark with that you would help them along in their journey? Is that something that each of us can do? Pray that God would give you. I don't care how old you are. There is somebody that's always behind us that we can lead them to Christ, whether they're lost, whether they're new believers, but pray that God give you one person. He'll open that door, but seek his face that you 
to pour yourself into that one person. In our last set of worship, in our last worship set, we want to turn our eyes upon Christ and consider how we should give ourselves away from the mission of God.